Section 40 of Crime and Punishment. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett. Epilogue, Chapter 1. Siberia. On the banks of a broad, solitary river stands a town, one of the administrative centers of Russia. In the town there is a fortress. In the fortress there is a prison. In the prison, the second-class convict Rodion Raskolnikov has been confined for nine months. Almost a year and a half has passed since his crime. There has been little difficulty about his trial. The criminal adhered exactly, firmly, and clearly to his statement. He did not confuse nor misrepresent the facts, nor soften them in his own interest, nor omit the smallest detail. He explained every incident of the murder, the secret of the pledge, the piece of the wood with a strip of metal, which was found in the murdered woman's hand. He described minutely how he had taken her keys, what they were like, as well as the chest and its contents. He explained the mystery of Lizaveta's murder, described how Koch and after him the student knocked and repeated all they had said to one another, how he afterwards had run downstairs and heard Nikolai and Dmitri shouting, how he had hidden in the empty flat and afterwards gone home. He ended by indicating the stone in the yard of the Voznosinsky prospect under which the purse and the trinkets were found. The whole thing, in fact, was perfectly clear. The lawyers and the judges were very much struck, among other things, by the fact that he had hidden the trinkets and the purse under a stone without making use of them, and that, what was more, he did not now remember what the trinkets were like, or even how many there were. The fact that he had never opened the purse, and did not even know how much was in it, seemed incredible. There turned out to be in the purse three hundred and seventeen roubles and sixty kopecks. From being so long under the stone, some of the most valuable notes lying uppermost had suffered from the damp. They were a long while trying to discover why the accused man should tell a lie about this, when about everything else he had made a truthful and straightforward confession. Finally, some of the lawyers, more versed in psychology, admitted that it was possible he had really not looked into the purse, and so didn't know what was in it when he hid it under the stone. But they immediately drew the deduction that the crime could only have been committed through temporary mental derangement, through homicidal mania, without object or the pursuit of gain. This fell in with the most recent fashionable theory of temporary insanity, so often applied in our days in criminal cases. Moreover, Raskolnikov's hypochondriacal condition was proved by many witnesses, by Dr. Zosimov, his former fellow-students, his landlady, and her servant. All this pointed strongly to the conclusion that Raskolnikov was not quite like an ordinary murderer and robber, but that there was another element in the case. To the intense annoyance of those who maintained this opinion, the criminal scarcely attempted to defend himself. To the decisive question as to what motive impelled him to the murder and the robbery, he answered very clearly, with the coarsest frankness, that the cause was his miserable position, his poverty and helplessness, and his desire to provide for his first steps in life by the help of the three thousand roubles he had reckoned on finding. He had been led to the murder, through his shallow and cowardly nature, exasperated, moreover, by privation and failure. To the question what led him to confess, he answered that it was his heartfelt repentance. All this was almost coarse. 
The sentence, however, was more merciful than could have been expected, perhaps partly because the criminal had not tried to justify himself, but had rather shown a desire to exaggerate his guilt. All the strange and peculiar circumstances of the crime were taken into consideration. There could be no doubt of the abnormal and poverty-stricken condition of the criminal at that time. The fact that he had made no use of what he had stolen was put down partly to the effect of remorse, partly to his abnormal mental condition at the time of the crime. Incidentally, the murder of Lizavieta served indeed to confirm the last hypothesis. A man commits two murders and forgets that the door is open. Finally, the confession, at the very moment when the case was hopelessly muddled by the false evidence given by Nikolai, through melancholy and fanaticism, and when, moreover, there were no proofs against the real criminal, no suspicion even, Porfiry Petrovich fully kept his word, all this did much to soften the sentence. Other circumstances, too, in the prisoner's favour, came out quite unexpectedly. Razumihin somehow discovered and proved that while Raskolnikov was at the university, he had helped a poor consumptive fellow-student, and had spent his last penny on supporting him for six months, and when this student died, leaving a decrepit old father whom he had maintained almost from his thirteenth year, Raskolnikov had got the old man into a hospital and paid for his funeral when he died. Raskolnikov's landlady bore witness, too, that when they had lived in another house at Five Corners, Raskolnikov had rescued two little children from a house on fire, and was burnt in doing so. This was investigated and fairly well confirmed by many witnesses. These facts made an impression in his favour. And in the end, the criminal was, in consideration of extenuating circumstances, condemned to penal servitude in the second class for a term of eight years only. At the very beginning of the trial, Raskolnikov's mother fell ill. Dunya and Razumihin found it possible to get her out of Petersburg during the trial. Razumihin chose a town on the railway not far from Petersburg, so as to be able to follow every step of the trial, and at the same time to see Avdotya Romanovna as often as possible. Pulcheria Alexandrovna's illness was a strange nervous one, and was accompanied by a partial derangement of her intellect. When Dunya returned from her last interview with her brother, she had found her mother already ill, in feverish delirium. That evening Razumihin and she agreed what answers they might make to her mother's questions about Raskolnikov, and made up a complete story for her mother's benefit of his having to go away to a distant part of Russia on a business commission, which would bring him in the end money and reputation. But they were struck by the fact that Pulcheria Alexandrovna never asked them anything on the subject, neither then nor thereafter. On the contrary, she had her own version of her son's sudden disappearance. She told them with tears how he had come to say good-bye to her, hinting that she alone knew many mysterious and important facts, and that Rodia had many powerful enemies, so that it was necessary for him to be in hiding. As for his future career, she had no doubt that it would be brilliant when certain sinister influences could be removed. She assured Razumihin that her son would be one day a great statesman, that his article and brilliant literary talent proved it. This article she was continually reading, she even read it aloud, almost took it to bed with her, but scarcely asked where Rodia was, 
though the subject was obviously avoided by the others, which might have been enough to awaken her suspicion. They began to be frightened at last at Pulcheria Alexandrovna's strange silence on certain subjects. She did not, for instance, complain of getting no letters from him, though in previous years she had only lived on the hope of letters from her beloved Rodia. This was the cause of great uneasiness to Dunya. The idea occurred to her that her mother suspected that there was something terrible in her son's fate, and was afraid to ask, for fear of hearing something still more awful. In any case, Dunya saw clearly that her mother was not in full possession of her faculties. It happened once or twice, however, that Pulcheria Alexandrovna gave such a turn to the conversation that it was impossible to answer her without mentioning where Rodia was, and on receiving unsatisfactory and suspicious answers she became at once gloomy and silent, and this mood lasted for a long time. Dunya saw at last that it was hard to deceive her, and came to the conclusion that it was better to be absolutely silent on certain points but it became more and more evident that the poor mother suspected something terrible. Dunya remembered her brother's telling her that her mother had overheard her talking in her sleep on the night after her interview with Svidrigailov and before the fatal day of the confession. Had not she made out something from that? Sometimes days and even weeks of gloomy silence and tears would be succeeded by a period of hysterical animation and the invalid would begin to talk almost incessantly of her son, of her hopes of his future. Her fancies were sometimes very strange. They humoured her, pretended to agree with her. She saw, perhaps, that they were pretending, but she still went on talking. Five months after Raskolnikov's confession he was sentenced. Razumihin and Sonia saw him in prison as often as it was possible. At last the moment of separation came. Dunya swore to her brother that the separation should not be forever. Razumihin did the same. Razumihin, in his youthful ardor, had firmly resolved to lay the foundations at least of a secure livelihood during the next three or four years, and saving up a certain sum to emigrate to Siberia, a country rich in every natural resource and in need of workers, active men and capital. There they would settle in the town where Rodia was, and all together would begin a new life. They all wept at parting. Raskolnikov had been very dreamy for a few days before. He asked a great deal about his mother, and was constantly anxious about her. He worried so much about her that it alarmed Dunya. When he heard about his mother's illness, he became very gloomy. With Sonia he was particularly reserved all the time. With the help of the money left to her by Svidrigailov, Sonia had long ago made her preparations to follow the party of convicts in which he was dispatched to Siberia. Not a word passed between Raskolnikov and her on the subject, but both knew it would be so. At the final leave-taking, he smiled strangely at his sisters and Razumihin's fervent anticipations of their happy future together when he should come out of prison. He predicted that their mother's illness would soon have a fatal ending. Sonia and he at last set off. Two months later, Dunya was married to Razumihin. It was a quiet and sorrowful wedding. Porfiry Petrovich and Zosimov were invited, however. During all this period, Razumihin wore an air of resolute determination. Dunya put implicit faith in his carrying out his plans, and indeed she could not but believe in him. He displayed a rare strength of will. 
Among other things he began attending University lectures again in order to take his degree. They were continually making plans for the future; both counted on settling in Siberia within five years at least. Till then they rested their hopes on Sonia. Pulcheria Alexandrovna was delighted to give her blessing to Dunia's marriage with Razumihin, but after the marriage she became even more melancholy and anxious. To give her pleasure, Razumihin told her how Raskolnikov had looked after the poor student and his decrepit father, and how a year ago he had been burned and injured in rescuing two little children from a fire. These two pieces of news excited Pulcheria Alexandrovna's disordered imagination almost to ecstasy. She was continually talking about them, even entering into conversation with strangers in the street, though Dunya always accompanied her, in public conveyances and shops. Wherever she could capture a listener, she would begin the discourse about her son, his article, how he had helped the student, how he had been burned at the fire, and so on. Dunya did not know how to restrain her. Apart from the danger of her morbid excitement, there was the risk of someone's recalling Raskolnikov's name and speaking of the recent trial. Pulcheria Alexandrovna found out the address of the mother of the two children her son had saved and insisted on going to see her. At last her restlessness reached an extreme point. She would sometimes begin to cry suddenly and was often ill and feverishly delirious. One morning she declared that by her reckoning Rodia ought soon to be home, that she remembered when he said goodbye to her, he said that they must expect him back in nine months. She began to prepare for his coming, began to do up her room for him, to clean the furniture, to wash and put up new hangings, and so on. Dunya was anxious, but said nothing, and helped her to arrange the room. After a fatiguing day spent in continual fancies, in joyful daydreams and tears, Pulcheria Alexandrovna was taken ill in the night, and by morning she was feverish and delirious. It was brain fever. She died within a fortnight. In her delirium she dropped words which showed that she knew a great deal more about her son's terrible fate than they had supposed. For a long time Raskolnikov did not know of his mother's death, though a regular correspondence had been maintained from the time he reached Siberia. It was carried on by means of Sonia, who wrote every month to the Razumihins and received an answer with unfailing regularity. At first they found Sonia's letters dry and unsatisfactory, but later on they came to the conclusion that the letters could not be better, for from these letters they received a complete picture of their unfortunate brother's life. Sonia's letters were full of the most matter-of-fact details, the simplest and clearest description of all Raskolnikov's surroundings as a convict. There was no word of her own hopes, no conjecture as to the future, no description of her feelings. Instead of any attempt to interpret his state of mind and inner life, she gave the simple facts, that is, his own words, an exact account of his health, what he asked for at their interviews, what commissions he gave her, and so on. All these facts she gave with extraordinary minuteness. The picture of their unhappy brother stood out at last with great clearness and precision. There could be no mistake, because nothing was given but facts. But Dunya and her husband could get little comfort out of the news, especially at first. Sonia wrote that he was constantly sullen and not ready to talk 
that he scarcely seemed interested in the news she gave him from their letters that he sometimes asked after his mother and that when seeing that he had guessed the truth she told him at last of her death she was surprised to find that he did not seem greatly affected by it not externally at any rate she told them that although he seemed so wrapped up in himself and as it were shut himself off from everyone he took a very direct and simple view of his new life that he understood his position expected nothing better for the time had no ill-founded hopes as it is common in his position and scarcely seemed surprised at anything in his surroundings so unlike anything he had known before she wrote that his health was satisfactory he did his work without shirking or seeking to do more he was almost indifferent about food but except on sundays and holidays the food was so bad that at last he had been glad to accept some money from her sonya to have his own tea every day he begged her not to trouble about anything else declaring that all this fuss about him only annoyed him sonya wrote further that in prison he shared the same room with the rest that she had not seen the inside of their barracks but concluded that they were crowded miserable and unhealthy that he slept on a plank bed with a rug under him and was unwilling to make any other arrangement but that he lived so poorly and roughly not from any plan or design but simply from inattention and indifference Sonia wrote simply that he had at first shown no interest in her visits, had almost been vexed with her indeed for coming, unwilling to talk, and rude to her, but that in the end these visits had become a habit and almost a necessity for him, so that he was positively distressed when she was ill for some days and could not visit him. She used to see him on holidays at the prison gates or in the guard-room, to which he was brought for a few minutes to see her on working days she would go to see him at work either at the workshops or at the brick kilns or at the sheds on the banks of the irtish about herself sonya wrote that she had succeeded in making some acquaintances in the town that she did sewing and as there was scarcely a dressmaker in the town she was looked upon as an indispensable person in many houses but she did not mention that the authorities were through her interested in raskolnikov that his task was lightened, and so on. At last the news came, Dunya had indeed noticed signs of alarm and uneasiness in the preceding letters, that he held aloof from everyone, that his fellow prisoners did not like him, that he kept silent for days at a time, and was becoming very pale. In the last letter Sonia wrote that he had been taken very seriously ill, and was in the convict ward of the hospital. End of Epilogue Chapter 1